Advent, and Advent means coming, which, and so Advent is a time of uh, thinking about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're spending five weeks in Isaiah 40, this uh, 31 verse chapter which talks about the coming of Christ. Isaiah was a prophet in the land of Israel about 700 years before the time of Christ. He spoke to a devastated people about a future event which would outshine every other event in human history. You remember that the first part of Isaiah 40, which we talked about last week, most of it was things said by what Isaiah refers to as a voice crying in the wilderness. And this voice talked about the world transforming coming of the Lord. It talked about the revelation of his glory to all peoples. And it talked about the certainty of this divine promise. Well, the gospel writer Luke makes it clear that he believed that Isaiah 40 was about the coming of Christ because when he introduces the ministry of John the Baptist in his account of the life of Christ, he quotes Isaiah 40 pertaining to John, whose ministry was to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. So let me read you a few verses from the beginning of Luke chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, the word of God came, and this we can get up there. Yes, very good. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is Isaiah 40, 3 to 5, which we read last week. Except notice that Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, takes some liberty with verse 5. Instead of, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, he paraphrases it to, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Again, this clearly confirms the messianic interpretation of Isaiah 40. And now, in this next section of Isaiah 40, Isaiah tells us more about this promised coming of the Lord. We'll be reading today verses 6 to 11. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? 
all flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Now this section, 6 to 11, has three main parts to it. And correspondingly, there are three main takeaways that I would like to commend to you. So let's take a quick stroll through Isaiah 46 to 11 and look at these three parts. First, 6 to 8. You can see that this second section of Isaiah 40 continues the theme of the coming of the Lord. In verse 10, it's clear, in, it says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might. But more specifically, the first half of the passage continues the last theme from verse 5, which we read last week. The theme of the certainty of God's promise that the Lord will surely come. You remember how verses 1 to 5 ended by saying how firmly fixed was this promise. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, continuing on this theme of the certainty of the divine promise in 6 to 8, Isaiah suddenly hears a voice, the voice of the Lord. It says, cry. And Isaiah says, what shall I cry? And then the answer comes, all flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. So in order to emphasize the enduring nature of God's gospel promise, the voice first talks about the transitory nature of human beings. And then in verse 8, the voice contrasts the temporary nature of the human with the permanent nature of the divine. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So that's the first section there, 6 to 8. Now, verse 9, the second part. It talks about the call of Zion to spread the good news of the Lord's coming. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. So Isaiah 40 doesn't stop at announcing the good news that the Lord will come. It goes further. 
it says that when the Lord comes, it will be incumbent on God's people to spread the news of his coming, to boldly announce it to the world, Behold your God. And then the third section in verses 10 and 11 tells us more about the coming of the Lord. First, verse 10 tells us that he comes with authority and power in order to reward and to punish. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. One of the things God's people found out when Christ came was that, you know, as they read all the the passages in the Old Testament which pointed forward to his coming and told about what it would be like, God's people, it took a while, but God's people realized that really it was talking about two comings. He came once, but then he's coming again. And that most of the promises like Isaiah 40.10 about him coming to bring judgment were to be fulfilled at his second coming and not at his first coming. And indeed, this is one of the great facts of history. One day, the Lord Jesus is coming back in great power to reward and to punish. On that day, he will be the only impressive thing. Everything else which has appeared impressive during the days of this life will suddenly be put in its place and will look trivial and insignificant compared to the presence of the returning Christ. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-10. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This, Paul continues, says, this includes you because you believed our testimony to you. But then the second thing that this tells us about the coming of the Lord is in verse 11, which tells us that the Lord will come as a shepherd to gently gather his little lambs in his arms. And of course, this was fulfilled when Jesus came, referring to himself as the good shepherd. It was also fulfilled in the way he acted especially his tenderness toward those who are weak or burdened, and by the way he shepherded his followers. Now both of these, the Lord coming as judge and the Lord coming as shepherd, are found not only in Isaiah 46 to 11, but also in many other places in Scripture. But many enemies of Christ don't seem to be able to reconcile these two. 
they think Christ must either be a tender shepherd or a severe judge. And honestly, the tender shepherd part, the tender shepherd part appeals to them. But they can't stand the fire and the brimstone. So there you have it, a quick tour of Isaiah 46 to 11. Now let's try to focus in on a few things in this passage that have the power to change our lives. First, let's talk about what it says about the Word of God. Now there are many prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. Many of them are rather short. Isaiah 40 is one of those large, long prophecies about the coming Christ that's in the Old Testament. For the first years of the Christian church, remember, there was no, no New Testament. It was, it was uh, written and then uh, passed around and copied and, and eventually it became uh, something that was commonly known and, and heard. But in those early years, there was no New Testament. All they had was the Old Testament and the preaching of the apostles and the teachings of Jesus and the apostles that were spread around by word of mouth. But the only written Bible they had was their Old, was their Old Testament. And the book of Isaiah was very prominent in, this, in these years for Christians because there was no book in the whole Old Testament which talked more about the coming of the Messiah. This was their gospel in a sense. For them, passages like Isaiah 40 were their gospel scriptures. Let me illustrate this by reading something that Peter said about the gospel. In 1 Peter 1, You have been born again, he writes to his Christian friends, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For, and then what does he do? He quotes Isaiah 40. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And then he adds a little commentary and an interpretation of this passage from Isaiah 40. He says, And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This word is the gospel. That was preached to you. So he's pointing right back to this passage in Isaiah 40 and saying, This is the gospel. They knew that Isaiah 40 was about Christ. They knew Isaiah 40 was the gospel promise that the Lord would come. And they knew that they lived in those joyful days when the Lord had come. Isaiah's main point in the first part of Isaiah 40, 6 to 11, 6, 7, and 8, 
is the abiding dependability of the Word of God. But to make his point, Isaiah first talks about the temporariness of humanity. All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. So we're only here for a short time. We're like a flower or a blade of grass. We grow up and thrive, but then the Lord blows on us and our time is up and we're no longer around here. The Bible says many things about who we are as human beings. He says we're made of dirt and yet made in his image. He says that we're extremely small and insignificant and hardly even noticeable in one sense and yet elevated by God even over the angels in another sense. Well, in stark contrast to this is God's word. God's word, Isaiah tells us, will stand forever. And it's so important that we get this contrast into our heads. The contrast between how temporary we are and how permanent God is in his word. In some ways, we are like God. But in this way, we are not like him. God has always been you and I are newbies. Even those of us who are old, we are newbies compared to God. A hundred years from now, when no one on earth uh, will even remember our name, he will still have the name that's above every name. We are so impressed by what people think, so influenced by the people around us, but they will all soon be gone. But God's word abides forever. The world is always in flux. One generation sees it this way and the next generation sees it that way. It won't be long till the things people are thinking and doing right now will be considered old-fashioned and ridiculous. And the people who everyone is paying attention to now will be considered old-fashioned and ridiculous. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change his opinion. He knew the end from the beginning. And his word is a reflection of that. And so his word will stand forever. It isn't affected by what the world thinks, what people, the most brilliant people in the world think. They know nothing compared to God. Even if it was the unanimous opinion of every person on earth that what the Bible says is ridiculous, that wouldn't make it ridiculous. The Word of God stands forever. So, it's important that we recognize the distinction between human opinions and God's truth. And don't let ourselves be shaken 
by what everybody else is thinking right now or even by what seems to be right to us. The second point is from verse 9 about God calling Zion to declare to the world, Behold your God. The first thing some people think of in light of this, I've heard this numerous times before, is the failure of the Jews to fulfill this call. And it's true that many Jews, most of them probably, failed to acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah and therefore failed to present him to the world as they were called to do. But John the Baptist was Jewish. Jesus himself was a Jew. The apostles were all Jewish, along with almost all of the earliest proclaimers of the gospel. The fact is, in spite of the failures of many Jewish people, Jewish people were the first heralds of the good news. From the beginning, it was Jews who lifted up their voice and said, Behold your God. But they didn't proclaim this merely to their fellow Jews. God showed them, through a long process, that the good news of the coming of the Lord Jesus needed to be proclaimed to all flesh so that even Gentiles might become part of Zion, part of the Jerusalem who become who are members of Zion and members of Jerusalem by faith. So we are now Zion. And our job is not to discern the extent of the Jewish failure in promoting the Messiah, but to make sure we don't fail in the same thing. This is our calling. We are the ones who are supposed to be heralds of the good news. We are the ones who are supposed to lift up our voices with strength. We are the ones who are supposed to go up on a high mountain and say to the world, Behold your God. And we are the ones who are supposed to fear not in doing so. The Lord doesn't come just for us. He calls us to become part of his mission, to introduce him to the world. He left the comfort zone of heaven and came into this harsh world proclaiming the truth of his kingdom. And now he asks us to leave our comfort zones and do the same. It's our job now. And what a joy and a privilege it is whether it's being involved in the proclamation of the gospel in foreign lands or whether it's sharing Christ with our sibling or our neighbor. This is our calling. The third point is about the Lord coming as a shepherd. He comes as a judge, but he also comes as a shepherd. As it has been said in a beautiful way, one arm raised in judgment and another arm lowered in compassion. But there is some detail in verse 11 here that we should pay attention to. It says, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. That's the general part. 
that he comes like a shepherd. But then he adds, he will gather the lambs in his arms, he will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. Now, in a flock of sheep, there are those with special needs, just like in any group of people. And there are two special situations mentioned here. First, little lambs who are too young to be able to walk long distances on their own. These, we're told, are gathered up into the arms of the shepherd and carried in his bosom like his little treasures. Second category of those who are in special situations are those who are with young, it says. They are led, these are led gently by the shepherd, knowing that they can only take so much traveling. Now, it's a little difficult here. There is a debate among scholars over whether this refers to a pregnant or to a nursing sheep. But the point is the same. The shepherd has a special eye for those who are burdened and is sure to give them the help that they need. This is the heart of Jesus, the good shepherd. I love Matthew 24. In the midst of this passage, very troubling and disturbing passage about that he's telling his disciples about this great tribulation that will come to their land soon. In verse 19, he alerts them to the special needs that some will have on that day. He says, Alas for women who are pregnant, who are nursing infants in those days. Isn't that beautiful? Pregnant or nursing? To know that the Good Shepherd knows the burden that they're carrying and cares about them? That he knows the Good Shepherd is always there for them to give them the help that they need? He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, Hebrews 5.2 tells us, since he himself is beset of course, there are other special needs and special burdens this applies to as well. God isn't only with child or those who are nursing. God has ordained that we carry burdens sometimes. But he also wants us to know that he very carefully measures the suffering and distress he allows us to carry. He measures its intensity and its duration. He is ever mindful of his people. He doesn't want them to be overcome. He is concerned about their welfare. What Jesus said to his disciples in Luke 21, 17 to 18. You will all be hated for all you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair on your head will perish. Isn't that beautiful? 
He's telling them that they're going to go through some really horrific things. But he wants them to know that he is not going to allow them to be harmed even in the smallest way. He's always help us when we are burdened. As he says in 1 Peter 5, 7, we can call, we can cast all of our anxieties upon him because he cares for us. Let me ask you, are you confident of the compassion of Jesus toward you? You need need to be. Do you know that Jesus is your good shepherd? Do you know that he will care in his arms and embrace them in his bosom and that that's talking about you? We have a merciful and faithful high priest. He suffered so he is able to help those who are experiencing trials. Hebrews 2.17 Most weeks, as you know, we end the service with a benediction from, of Jesus from Luke 12.32 Do not be afraid, little flock. Father has chosen gladly to give you the... Here Jesus addresses his people as a little flock. But he also acknowledges that we are afraid. Do not be little flock. Your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. And now may I add one final having to do with this word that we've talked about, this Hebrew word chesed. There's something strange in verse 6. Can we go back to verse 6? There. Something strange in verse 6 in this passage that you don't pick up when you're just reading the English. All flesh is grass and all its beauty. We've talked about this marvelous word chesed, the old, the great love word of the Old Testament, which means love. Well, that word mysteriously appears in verse 6, and most translators have no idea what to do with it. They often translate it as our translators have in the ESV here. But really the word there is chesed. All flesh is grass and it's chesed, the flower of the field. Now they translated beauty not because chesed means beauty in any other place that we have. That seems to be what the context makes the most sense. So they just put it there. But I think it's best left with its original meaning. Just as man is temporary like grass while God's word stands forever, so human love, the most covenant love we can come up with, is temporary like a flower while God's love stands forever.
is grass and all its the covenant love of flesh is like the flower of the field the grass withers the flower fades human love like a flower it can be beautiful and it can be sweet but the fact is it fades but the love of the Lord never ceases nothing in life or even in death will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. People will let you down. Even your spouse will let you down. But Jesus will never let you down. He will never falter in his love. Even when others turn away from you, in him there is not even a shadow of turning as James tells us in 117. He says he's going to take care of you. He says he's going to save you. He says he's going to lead you. He says he's going to provide for you. And he's going to do it. Let us pray. Thank you, O oh Lord that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Help us to believe that. Surely, Lord, you have proven it to us. Obedience to die on the cross for us. If he's willing to do that, He's willing to do anything in order to love us. Help us to believe that, Lord. And now we thank you that we can celebrate what he has done for us at the table, in the sacrament, where he says, this is my body and this is my blood broken for you. Oh, Lord, Help us to have your love confirmed in our own minds and strengthened. For just as the word of the Lord stands forever, so we know that the love of the Lord stands forever as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.